The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Welcome to Westway. If we haven't met, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's weird after not speaking for four weeks, I am so nervous right now. Dumb. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. Um, We're beginning our series today on Paul's two letters to the church at Thessalonica. And one of the things that we we do, if you've been here, or if you haven't been here in the past, is we create these series resource guides for you. And we are limited in how many we're allowed to print because of copywriting issues. But if you haven't picked one up, I would encourage you to grab one uh, before you leave today. What you'll find is on the inside of these resources guides, you'll have the text of First and Second Thessalonians on one side, and then a place for you to make notes on the other side. Um, we encourage you to bring these and take notes in them. I also just quickly want to draw uh, your attention to something towards the front. And it's this, uh, this is called a QR code. And if you look in your guide, you'll see that you can scan this with your phone. And it will take you to an electronic version of this guide without the text of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians inside of it. But there's a whole bunch of links that you'll be able to click. So obviously in the, in the paper guide, you can't click these links. There's nothing, there's nothing to click on. But in the electronic version, all of these links for all of these resources are just clickable links. There's audio podcasts, there's videos for you to watch, and we just encourage you to utilize uh, this as a tool. The other thing, two other things I want to mention to you, we've created these these as-you-read guides uh, just to help you learn how to read and study the Bible uh, for yourself. There's something on both sides. And then lastly, beginning in January, we wanted to think of ways that we could pray together as a body. So we've created these prayer guides And these guides are designed around each week's uh, messages. So we just encourage you, if if you're one of those people that struggles with what you should pray about, um, I know, like, I can be there. Uh, It's really easy for me to wonder what I have to pray, which is why I write things down. So we've tried to make it easy for you. And we believe that if we are all praying the same thing, and we're praying, praying consistently, we're praying in unity, and we're praying the kinds of prayers that we know God wants to answer, and that kind of sounds a little maybe presumptuous on our part, Um, But if we read the very first one as a, for instance, the big picture for this week, pray that we would live lives of encouragement. Um, It's not very presumptuous that 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 we want to live that way, that God wants us to live that way. We take this right from Scripture, so we just encourage you uh, to do that. So I prep uh, for our series in the same way. Um, I just read the text. Found that to be the easiest way to get in the mindset and in, in the mind frame of what we're going to be talking about and what we're going to be preaching through. And usually this a, a, a process for a series like this begins months and months and months ago. I sat down in my basement where I wake up in the morning, pour myself a cup of coffee, go downstairs into my basement, and I kind of read through my devotions for the day, kind of pray, uh, pray for you. We're going to talk more about that in a second. And then as I'm thinking about uh, what series we're going to do, because that's all laid out, I just start reading the text. Found that to be the easiest way. And several months ago, I'm sitting in my basement, and I turn my Bible to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. I know I told you to go to Acts 17. But I turn my Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I just started to read. It says this. This letter is from Paul. Silas and Timothy, we're writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just stopped right there for a moment. Honestly, it was, it was in conviction. 
So I picked up my Bible again and I, I, I reread just those first three verses. And what I noticed Paul is doing here in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Thessalonians 1 is he's not just praying for the church. He's not just praying for the church. What he says is, as I think about you, there are certain things that I am thankful about you. As I think about you before God, when I go to God in prayer and I think about you, I'm not just thinking of the things that, that maybe I, I want you to be, maybe the things I maybe wish you would do differently, but I'm actually thankful to God for who you are. He says he was thankful for their faithful work, their loving deeds, and their enduring hope that they have because of Jesus. And as I thought about that for a moment, I consistently pray for our church. You guys, are, you guys are on my list. I said I had to, said I had to write it down. Um, I think I have now about seven of these little three-by-five cards. Because seriously, I'm so bad at praying. If I don't write it down, I don't pray for it. So, so, I, so I have this prayer list that I go through every single day. And I pray for Westway. I pray that we would grow in our wisdom and knowledge leading to transformation. I pray that we would invite others. I pray for the salvation of 100 people. I pray that God would awaken the dry bones that are in our congregation. I pray that God would provide workers for the harvest for us. I pray that I would love our body. And what's noticeably missing is I don't, and I haven't, up until this moment, several months ago, when I was praying, I wasn't, I wasn't thanking God for you. I wasn't thinking about what I could be thinking about, thinking about God for you. And I'm not, like, I wasn't happy about that. We have this example in scripture that, that Paul's saying, I pray for the church. And then when I pray, I think about how awesome you are. I think about the great things that you are. And I praise God for you. And as I just sat there in my basement, because it's, it's quiet. It's like 5.30 in the morning. My cat is down there with me, sometimes meowing. But I just sat there and, and I, man, it was just like, how embarrassing. How, how embarrassing that when I think about our body, I'm not, I'm not bringing the good things to God. So I had to, I had to acknowledge that that was sinful. Right? It's easy to pray for people. It's not easy to thank God for them. So I repented of that and thought about it. I had to do something different. So then I had to express in prayer what I'm thankful for in regards to West White Christian Church, which then presented a new problem. Because I had a whole bunch of thoughts immediately run through my brain as I'm thinking about this. What am I thankful to God about regarding the body at Westway? Am I thankful to God for the body at Westway? What kinds of things ought I be grateful about regarding the body at Westway? And it was this last question that really was a little bit crushing. What if I can't come up with a list of things that I'm thankful about at Westway. What does, that, what does that say about my soul? What does that say about my heart? That when I think about my church, and, I, and I'm not talking about my church as John Mulholland, lead pastor. I'm thinking about my church as the body that I am necessarily called to be in a relationship with. If honestly, I can't think of one single thing to be thankful to God about about this place, like what, that doesn't say anything about you. It says everything about me. You'll be glad to know that I did in fact come up with a list. And I wrote it down. So I don't write it down. I'm not going to say it. So when I, as I pray to God about you, I think of your faithfulness. 
I think of all of the things that, that Westway has endured in, in the la- just the last six years. COVID, losing a pastor, pastoral staff transitions, wacky things like putting round tables in the room. You guys have had to endure a lot. So I think of your faithfulness. I think of your encouragement. I think of your encouragement in terms of the way that, that we've had a number of pastoral transitions over the last several years. And you've let that happen. You actually just let, over the last month, you allowed each one of the pastors to speak. One of them actually spoke twice. Like, that's encouraging. And you still showed up week after week. See, there are some churches where when the main person is speaking, the normal voice of the church is speaking. When that person isn't there, there are some people that decide they're not going to go to church because what could they possibly learn from someone else? But that's not, that's not you. I think of your patience in the same way, just patience when, in letting our pastors gain their voice, become who they are. I think of your grace and I added one, your willingness to do new things. See that when I, when I think about Westway, when I go before God, I, I thank God for that. These things are the things that encourage me. And what I want you to know is we, you guys aren't these things on your own. You are these things, faithful, encouraging, patient, graceful, willingness to try new things, willing to try new things. You are these things because of who God is. It's because God has transformed you. God has entered into your life and he has transformed you. Because I think we can all agree, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, like it's not always easy to be encouraging, is it? It's not easy to be patient. Like as thrilled as we all were when we found out that, that another pastor was going to speak over the last several weeks, Surely when some of you came in the room on that Sunday and someone else stood up here, there was, surely there was at least one person that was kind of like, oh man, I can't wait until John is back. And that has nothing to do with me, but like that's normal. One of the churches that I listen to, I watch their, I watch their video feed every week. And when their normal pastor doesn't speak, there's a little part of me that dies inside. But you know what? Like I have things that I can learn from this because this isn't our bent, We need God to transform us. And we are these things because of who you are and whose you are. And the more more I read through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, I think I've probably read it 20 times, um, at least over the past uh, couple months. The more I read it, I paraphrase it, I rewrite it, I do all these things, I study, I read and take notes. Like the more I'm just filled with this, this is such an encouraging set of letters. And as I've been reading through, the, the, the phrase that rose to the top was encouraged to encourage. What Paul is doing is he's writing these two letters to the church at Thessalonica to encourage them to encourage. To encourage them to build them up. So we do this every time at the beginning of a series. <clears throat> Where is Thessalonica? Who were the people that lived there? How did their church start? I want to refer you in the YouVersion app. I did a 15-minute YouTube video yesterday. You can click on in there. And we go back into Acts 15 and 16. I want you to watch that later. I'm sorry I didn't do that earlier in the week. I just didn't think about it. But if you want to know more details about how the church at Thessalonica started, like why were Paul and Barnabas even in, or Paul and Silas even in Thessalonica, you can watch that video. You can read Acts 15 and 16. We have a map here for you, um, for you visual learners, because that's me. If you look up at the, almost at the top of the map, almost in the middle, you'll see Thessalonica there. Um, It tucked into a corner of the Aegean Sea. And there's a couple things you need to know. Thessalonica became capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And in order to, in order to administer, because Italy's over there, that's where Rome is. So like in order to keep track of all of their cities, they built this huge highway system. Maybe you've heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Um, That phrase started here. And one of those roads was called the Ignatian Way. 
And it connected Asia Minor with the Adriatic Sea. So there was a road that ran all the way north from Thessalonica all the way up to the Adriatic Sea. And then it ran east-west to get to Rome. In 42 BC, Thessalonica became a free city. And here's what that means. There was no Roman garrison there. There were no Roman soldiers there. They were a free city. They were self-governed. They were self-ruled. They had a population of about 200,000 people. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 17. This is, this is 49 or 50 AD when this takes place. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3. Paul and Silas then traveled. They had been at Philippi, which is 70 miles away. Paul and Silas then traveled to the ta- through the towns of Ap- Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. So there's a lot of things that we can learn just from a few verses. I love the way Scott unpacked his text earlier today. It's like one little verse, and there's just so many things that are going on in there. There's a lot we can learn from this text. So Paul's, Paul's MO is the way that he operated. When Paul got to a new town, the first thing he would do is he would go to the local synagogue. That's where he would start his teaching. And a synagogue is like a, is like a Jewish learning center because there's only one temple and it's in Jerusalem. So it's this Jewish learning center and they were these individual houses of worship like wherever Jews happened to be, they set up a synagogue. So they can't always go to the temple, but they want to worship together, so they build a synagogue. We, maybe we would call that a church building. So there's this physical place where the Jews would gather and they would practice their faith. They'd practice their religion. So because Paul was a Jew who had converted to Christianity, that's where he would start. He remembered that Jesus' mission was first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So he's going to show up in the synagogue. And what Paul did when he taught, he did something amazing. He used his Bible to teach. Paul used the Bible to teach. He used the Old Testament to teach. And he reasoned with them. He talked to them. He would would open up the scroll to Isaiah 53. Maybe this is a text that we are familiar with. We, We usually read Isaiah 53 around Easter, thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul would open his scroll, this scroll, to Isaiah 53, and he would read from it. He would look at all of these old prophecies from his Bible, the Old Testament, and he would read from it. He would explain the prophecies and prove that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. That was what Paul did. That was how Paul taught. Goes to the synagogue, opens his Bible, and what he's going to do is he's going to use the Old Testament to convince them that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Why? Like, why would that be his sticking point? If you think back, the things that maybe I know we've talked about here, maybe you've heard it in other churches. How many times have we heard that the, that the disciples and the, the Jewish leaders, they were looking for a Messiah who was going to deliver them from Rome? That sounds familiar to you. This is what these Jews are waiting for. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to go right in and he's going to say the Messiah has to suffer and rise from the dead. And then he says... Jesus is that Messiah. Let me tell you about him. His name is Jesus. He's already already done this. He's already done what he said he was going to do. So what's the response? So after three weeks, three weeks of teaching, my guess is he didn't preach the same message all three weeks in a row. My guess is This was a culmination of teaching. Everything he said on week one was foundational for week two. What he said on week two was foundational for week three. That's why we go through the Bible in the way that we go through it, because we're building on things. Right? After three weeks, 
Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. It's the response. Some of the Jews heard this after three weeks, and they're like, okay, we're in. We're going to worship this Messiah. Then many God-fearing Greeks. What does that mean? See, people as people who were Greeks and not Jews would, would show up at the synagogue And even though they hadn't fully converted to Judaism, they believed that there was one God, and Yahweh was his name. They believed in the moral and ethical standards of Judaism, but they weren't converts to Judaism. Right? They, maybe it'll be like this. Maybe today we might think of people who Maybe they like the church because it teaches me, like, it's a pretty good way to live. I like what I hear. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be lollipops and gumdrops if everybody lived that way? But they haven't converted. They weren't Jews. Does that make sense? Are you, are you applying the subtext of what I'm saying? See, these God, it's not that they were bad people. They just weren't true Jews. And I think sometimes we can maybe go to church and think that we're in because we do the things that church people do. These are God-fearing Greeks. Like they're learning, they're growing. It's not that, it's not that the synagogue doesn't want them there. But the point is conversion. And these people hear this and they're converted. Like they're skipping the whole Judaism thing. And they're going, they're going right to Christianity. And I love it more than quite a few prominent women. You should read through the book of Acts and see how many females come to believe in Jesus. But it wasn't all good things. Let's read verse 5. But some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they are disturbing, they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They're all guilty of treason. Against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil for these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. Don't miss, don't miss the charge. The charge is they're preaching a different gospel. They're preaching a gospel that's different than the culture's gospel. They're preaching a gospel that's different than the gospel of Rome. We talked about this last year when we went through the book of Romans. Remember Rome's gospel? Caesar was the divine savior who brought peace through the sword. That was Rome's gospel. That was Rome's good news. And as long as you went along with the cultural gospel, everything was great. Everything was fine. Like, You could be a Jew, you could go to synagogue, but at the end of the day, as long as you worshipped Rome's gospel, as long as you didn't stir up trouble, as long as you didn't cause problems, as long as you didn't speak out against Rome's gospel, you were okay. So these guys are speaking out against Rome's gospel. And Paul, Silas... Timothy, and maybe even Luke are chased out of town. Let's pick up in verse 10. That very night, the believer sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Whenever we hit this verse, we talk about it. I'm going to talk about it again. It's their responsibility 
of believers to compare what is being taught to the scripture. This is is your job. This is why we ask you every single week, open your Bible to this text. Open your version to this app. Find this event. Like you, This is your job to compare to what the scriptures say. So that you are, you are the check on us as teachers. You are the check on us as leaders. And I just love the way that Luke describes them as more open-minded. And why were they open-minded? Because they checked what people said because they read the Bible. I think I said this a few months ago. Our culture says you're closed-minded if you compare culture to the Bible. That's what closed-minded is according to our culture. And isn't it interesting that Luke describes something else? See, it's open-minded people who actually contrast and compare messages that they're hearing. It's an open-minded person who hears a message Maybe that our cultural proclaims and thinks to yourself, "Mm, I'm not so sure that that's true. See, that's open-minded. Closed-minded people go along with the culture. Closed-minded people do whatever the culture says. Closed-minded people don't think. As a result, I love this, many Jews believe, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. But when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul on to the coast, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. I wonder if if this is all we had to go on. I wonder how we would characterize the people of Thessalonica. I wonder how we would think about them. I wonder if you were Paul, what would you do? You go to Thessalonica, you proclaim the gospel, there's fruit, it's good, but then you get chased out of town, you go to the next town. My guess is, a couple weeks later, here come the Thessalonians. Like, how would you think about them? How would you respond? I wonder if you would be done with the people of Thessalonica. As I was thinking about this over the past week, several months ago, we sent a group of people um, to to Nema Village in Tanzania. And I wonder what would have happened after like four days if they had to be evacuated and fly home because they were chased out of town, like, would we still send people to Tanzania? Like, I, th- I think we might be tempted to write that mission off. Well, maybe, maybe God's closed that door. Maybe we shouldn't go there anymore. Maybe we should wait and see. But the interesting thing is, and we're going to read this in a few weeks, when we get to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, is, is Paul didn't abandon them. Paul was in it for the long haul with them. He was in it for the relationship with them. And teaching and discipleship had to continue. Only he couldn't go there. So he's going to write these two letters. And before he does that, he sends Timothy, which I I find baffling. The youngest and most inexperienced member of their team is the guy that Paul sends back into that, into Thessalonica. Hey, Timothy, can you go check out and see how things are going? Like, it's baffling to me. And he goes there, this is later in 1 Thessalonians, he goes there to strengthen them, to encourage them, and keep them to be shaken from their troubles, by their troubles. And when Timothy returns, Paul is overjoyed. Because what he finds is the church in Thessalonica, they haven't just survived they're not just surviving, but in fact, they're, they're thriving. They're growing. They're living lives differently. So he writes to them twice. And scholars believe that these are the earliest of Paul's letters. 
possible exception of Galatians. But scholars believe these are the earliest of Paul's letters. And one of the things I noticed as, I, as I've been reading through these a lot over the, past, over the past couple months, like I see little threads in First and Second Thessalonians that Paul's going to talk about. Oh, yeah, Paul wrote about that in 1 Corinthians. Paul talked about that in Romans. Paul talked about that later in his... So he's, like, he's, he's developing his, his theology. He's developing his argument. He's, he's learning how to do this. And in this very first letter that Paul writes, he celebrates their faithfulness and challenges them to grow. And then in the second letter, just probably a few months later, maybe six months later, he talks about the hope in midst of persecution, the return of Jesus, and he challenges them to not be idle. To not be idle. These two brief letters are filled with encouragement, reminders of who God is, what he's done because of who he is, and who they are because of that. Paul is writing these two letters to remind them of who God is, what he's done because of who he is, and the way they are to respond. See, they're they're to act because of what God has done. And God has done what he did because of who he is. Toward the end of this first letter, in chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 to 11, Paul writes this, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us, Whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up, just as you are already doing. One of the things that we we need to know as we read this text this morning, this 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 to 11 text, is that this, this word that Paul uses in the Greek for encourage, the English word encourage, it's a verb and it's an imperative. And here's what an imperative means. An imperative means it's a command. So Paul is not suggesting that the church encourage one another. Paul is not saying, when you get around to it, encourage one another. Paul is giving the church at Thessalonica an imperative. He's giving them a command to encourage one another. It's a command. And then the second Greek word for build up is also an active verb. It's an imperative. It's a command. So when the church at Thessalonica received this letter... And Paul is telling them to encourage and build one another up. He's telling them to encourage and build one another up. He's saying, this is is your role. This is your responsibility. And one of the things that that we want to remember as we're reading a letter like 1 Thessalonians, as we're reading a letter like 2 Thessalonians, when Paul writes that to a church, Paul is not writing to the church as organization. He's not writing this letter to be received by by the elders in Thessalonica for them to open it up and read it in an elders meeting and say, well, we got to start encouraging people. When it says church, It's the gathered body of believers. When Paul is telling the church to encourage, I'm sorry, when Paul is commanding the church to encourage and build one another up, you know who he's talking to? He's talking to everyone. He's saying, this is all of your job. This is everyone. And it's a command. Again, I'm not suggesting it. I'm not, if you think about it, if you feel like it, If someone's nice to you, only if you have a good morning, you don't run out of coffee that day. No, Paul is is commanding the church, the church, the body, not the organization. 
not the pastors, or not only the pastors, not only the elders, but he's telling the church to encourage one another and to build one another up. I'm commanding you to do this, in fact. And what's kind of so interesting about this is, is Paul is writing this letter to a group of people who in many ways are, are a lot like us. They had jobs. They had friends. Some of whom weren't Christians, weren't believers. They had family members. They were wanting to know. They probably didn't have the, the word vacation, but they were wondering when they were going to get down to go to the Aegean Sea, maybe once or twice in their life. They're thinking about how much money they don't have. They're thinking about all of these different things that get in the way, that get in the way of encouraging other people. See, the people in Thessalonica are really a lot like us. There are a whole host of things that get in our way, and, and typically it's our, it's our pride, right? What prevents me from being an encourager? Well, I have preferences. I have pride. I have better things to do. I don't think about it. How about this one? I meant to. Anyone, I, I meant to encourage her. Anyone wake up in the morning and think to yourself, oh man, I need to send a person that, that text today. And then like later that day, that evening, you're like, oh crud, I was supposed to send someone a text encouraging them today. So my wife is my accountability on that. Hey, remind me, remind me to do this. Ask me about this later. And if she asks me a million times, I can't be mad about it because the person who forgot is me. Right? Like, there are a thousand things that get in the way of us encouraging other people. And the hard part is this is something that we've been commanded to do. So we kind of have to make a choice. And, and I just, I go back to my little, I go back to my little prayer card, one of them, one of seven, because right? if, I don't, if I don't write it down, I'm not going to do it. There are lots of things that get in the way of encouraging others. And what we want to see is God is calling us to encourage. God is calling them to encourage, and he's calling us to encourage. Why? What did verse 9 say? God chose to save them through Jesus rather than pour out his anger on them. Why should we encourage? Because God chose to save us. See, sometimes we think that, that we are not owed God's anger. We think that God's anger or justice towards us is unrighteous. But that's not the case. See, what God has done is he has saved us through Jesus. And rather than pour out his anger on you, which is what you deserve... Jesus died for you. Jesus died for them so they could live with him when he returns. Jesus died for us so that we can live with him when he returns. This is why Jesus died. This is why he came. And we're going to get into this in the text over the next two months. But there's a lot of conversation about when is Jesus coming back? What are the signs that we should look for when Jesus comes back? They didn't have Facebook like us, right? So you see something on Facebook and you're like, that's a sign, right? All the people in Thessalonica, like they're wondering these, when is Jesus going to come back? What's going to happen? What's it going to be like? What about my relatives that have died? Are they going to go to heaven? Did we miss Jesus' return? Like th these are all of the things that these people are thinking about. And this puts us in such good company, at least some of us. And it's really not that great of a company, I would encourage you to get your head out of thinking about all of the things that have to take place in your mind for Jesus to return and do what Paul told them to do, which is to love and serve one another. See, there are more important things to Paul 
and there are more important things in Thessalonica than them worrying about when Jesus is going to come back. Because there's this whole group of people all around them, and they chased him out of town who don't know Jesus. And when Jesus comes back on the day they're talking about, all them people are not going to heaven. God has a mission for them to love and serve. And the fruit of God's spirit is love. And I always forget one of these, so I have to write it down. See? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the fruit of God's spirit. This is how we love others and we serve others. And it's these things that come out of us because of who is inside of us. And as followers of Christ, the person that's inside of us is the Holy Spirit. So I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, and these things are just going to be a natural outflow of that. This is what we're called to do. Paul wrote these words in the hopes they'd faithfully love, honor, and serve God through the way that they loved, honored, and served one another. Paul's desire in these letters was to let them know how grateful he is for their consistent faith to tell, him of the way, tell them of the ways they encourage him in his and to encourage them to love and serve God through loving and serving one another. Because we're God's people, this is God's desire for us too. That we love, honor, and serve. This is a command for us. And it's not just elders and pastors and team leaders at Westwood Christian Church. It's a command for us as the body. And again, it's not easy. It's, over, it's easy for us to overlook. It requires effort on our part. And I just want to share um, two, two stories of over just the past two months. One of them in which I completely blew it, and one of them in which I almost blew it, but thanks to my wife, I didn't. Um, if you remember, back in April... We talked, about, we talked about what Westway believes about leadership. And we talked specifically about how, how the wives of our pastors and elders weren't, or the wives of our elders weren't elder wives, meaning they weren't, they weren't elders. And then we talked about how the wives of our pastors weren't pastors, meaning they weren't pastors. And I want to say... About three days later, I had someone send me a text and ask me a question about something. And it was a question about, it was, honestly, it was a question about women's, women's roles in the church. And I said, yeah, we should get together and talk about that. Like, I'd love to have that conversation with you. So this couple came into my office and like, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't, it wasn't the principal's office. Nobody got yelled at. Um, and we, we, we just had a conversation about this. And, then, and then, one, uh, then one of the things that this person asked me was, um, you know, John, you were, she didn't put it quite like this. You are so focused on talking about who our elders and pastors' wives weren't that you didn't tell us what they were. And I just thought to myself, that's pretty good feedback. That's like three to five sentences worth of encouragement. How hard is it to encourage? It's pretty impossible to encourage if you're not thinking about ways to encourage. And maybe you think that's, maybe you think that like that's an illegitimate critique. But, but I don't think it is. Because our goal is to encourage people. And to make people feel known and valued and loved. So I took this feedback and, and the very next day I sent this text to our, to our elders' wives and our pastors' wives. Good morning. I wanted to reach out to you about my recent message on what, about, on Westway, about, on what Westway believes about leadership. I recently had someone ask a few questions about that message and it seems like I was so focused on stating who you were not, parentheses, in terms of being an elder or pastor that I spent no time talking about all the ways each of you serves the body in line with your own gifts, talents, and skills apart from your identity as pastor, elder, wife. I never talked about who you were. I clearly missed an opportunity to celebrate and encourage you and I'm truly sorry for this. 
Each of you are valued and loved at Westway, and I never meant to imply that you were less than in any way, shape, or form. I wish I would have taken the time to talk about you and your commitment to Westway. I know that each of you bears a tremendous amount of burden beyond your own individual ministries, and it should have been talked about again. I'm sorry. I hope you'll forgive me for this, and I'll be addressing this with our whole body in June when we hit the series on First and Second Thessalonians. See, we need, to, we need to encourage. We need to go out of our way to encourage people. This is what Paul is commanding us to, to encourage. To look for ways to encourage. And then the second one was last week. We were out of town. We went to Anissa's wedding in Sioux Falls. We're driving back. We were watching the live stream while I was driving. Actually, it wasn't live. It was, it was recorded. And I thought to myself, man, the audio mix on this sounds so fantastic. It sounds so good. Like, I can't believe how good this sounds online. So I handed my wife to my phone because I don't text and drive. I handed my wife to my phone. I said, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you text Cody and ask him who, who is uh, doing broadcast audio today? And she said, yes. And then she said, and I should probably add, because it sounds really good. Because this is what I was going to do. I was going to send that text to Cody, who was running broadcast audio today. Cody was going to respond, Nick Andrews, and then you know what I was going to do? I was going to say, okay, thanks. Planting this seed in Cody's brain of what? What am I supposed to do with this information? How hard is it? Just encourage Take this little step and encourage. And what would it be like for us as, as we're, as we're going, just going through our normal week and our normal lives with all of the thousands of things that we have going on around us? Like, what would it be like for us just to, just to hit pause on our life for 30 seconds and encourage? And like, I'm obviously, I am terrible at this. But I don't want to be. I want to encourage our body. So one of the things that, that we wanted to do today was, was give an opportunity for our body to encourage one another. And we're going to just do this really simply. Um, I'd love for you, um, what we're not going to say, don't, um, they're not going to say your name, we're not going to do anything like that. I would love for you, if you have your cell phone with you, I'll get it out. I would encourage you to get your phone out for a second. And I'm going to read, and this is going to be on the screen. I want to encourage you. As I pray to God about Westway, I can thank him for. And I wonder how you would fill in the blank to that statement. And I just want to ask you to send your response to that number. And I have this little phone set up right here. It's not my phone. And hopefully, you're going to do this, and this thing is going to ding, and we can just be encouraged. And what we want to do over the next week is use your answers, use your feedback, not your name, use your feedback, and we want to start encouraging one another as a body. Because there are so many things, like there are so many ways that we can encourage one another. There are so many things that we can, we can be doing to be the body that God is calling us to be. And it starts with encouragement. It doesn't look like overlooking imperfections. It doesn't look like not having hard conversations about things. It's not about not receiving feedback. But it is about encouraging because there are a lot of things to be encouraged by. Did you know that we have a group of people who are on their way to CIY in Joplin, Missouri right now, four of which who are with our high school students who have given up their vacation week to take high school students to CIY. I don't know what it was like. Okay, so I've been in ministry for 17 years. Right, so when I go to CIY, it may seem like a vacation, it's not. But I worked, like I had a, what I'll call a real job 
And it was hard to give up vacation time with my wife to go to CIY or to go to camp. We have four adults who have given up their vacation week to go to CIY. Like that's something worth encouraging. We have a group of people every single week who are here starting about 745 to do this and to do that. And to do that, and in the other space in the building, to be, to be broadcast audio, like these are things worth encouraging one another about. Here in a few months, when you, when you roll up on a Sunday morning that all those fresh vegetables are going to be there, someone is going to pick those. As much as our garden team wishes that they would just beam from the garden to that box, Like it doesn't, that's not what happens, right? See, there are ways, there are things that we want to be encouraging about regarding our body. We are commanded to encourage and build one another up. And my prayer for you, my prayer for this series is as we go through this over the next two months is that we'll be encouraged. To encourage My plan and my hope and my prayer is not just for you to walk out of here every week feeling good. My hope and my prayer and my plan for you is for you to walk out of here every single week encouraging someone else. Not just encouraged, not just built up, but committed to doing those things. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for who you are. I'm thankful that you you love us, that you're concerned for us, not just our our physical wants or our physical needs, but you are concerned for our spiritual well-being. You are so concerned for our spiritual well-being that you sent your son Jesus to die for us so that when he returns, We can go and be with him. I pray this week, God, that we would be looking for ways to encourage. That we would be intentionally seeking out ways to encourage. To build up the body. That we would take a moment. And when we think about the body, we praise you for who they are. And it's in your sons in my prayer.